We're in the Old Testament. We're in the book of Amos. The book of Amos. If not for any reason, just try to find the book of Amos. But it's in the Old Testament. It's one to consider the minor prophets. And we are majoring on the minors, I guess you could say it. That's a, an old musical joke. But it is about the minor prophets. And you know why they call them minors? That's right. They're called the minors simply because of the length of the message. They are, it doesn't mean they're less important. It just simply means that they are smaller than the other messages like Hosea, I'm sorry, like uh, Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, and um, other, other prophets, of course, wrote similar lengths. But Amos is only nine chapters, so it's a bit of a smaller book. There are smaller ones, like Obadiah, but this one is considered a minor prophet. And of course, the year is 760 B.C., 760 years before Jesus, there was this man named Amos who, came on, who comes on the scene from the southern kingdom of Judah, and he goes to the northern kingdom of Israel. Just a little bit of a background. Let's pray before we get started, and we'll ask the Lord to give us his grace to understand what he has for us tonight. Lord God, we thank you for tonight. Be with us, Lord, by your spirit. Teach us, Lord, more about Jesus from every page of this book, we're told that it's about him. So, Lord, we're in eager desire to find him in this book. And we ask you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been said, Christ and all the scriptures. So when you read the minor prophets, it is something about Jesus related in these prophets. They all spoke of him in some way or another. They all related to him in some way or another. And they all had symbolic meaning of of their ministry, similar to Jesus. And here's Amos, who is not originally from Israel. He is a Jew nonetheless, but he is from the southern kingdom. Remember, he had split, and now the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom were separate. And here is this man, and he is a shepherd. He is a prophet. And tonight, you're going to find out how he got into the ministry. It wasn't easy. In fact, he didn't even ask for it. It was simply God's uh, sovereignty and will to call him into the ministry. And do uh, you guys remember what he did? He was a shepherd. I told you that. What else did he do? He, was, he also had another job. Trees. Yes, he actually did not make enough money as a shepherd, uh, which they didn't at the time. It was one of the lowest paying jobs ever. And he actually supplemented his income by taking care of sycamore trees. And he would have this sort of wild fig-like, if you like figs, uh, you kind of know what we're talking about. So they, he took care of trees. And he comes to a very, very important message. The people that he's talking to have an S-I-N problem. Have an S-I-N problem. And of course, every time we think of an S-I-N, sin, sin always has I in the middle. And he's speaking to a, a rebellious people, a sinful people, in which we would say, well, I can't believe they were so sinful. But in reality, he would be speaking to every single one of us because all of us have sinned. Now, we'll talk about the difference because he goes to a people that is completely sinful. In fact, they were very wealthy. The people that he's talking to them will be very wealthy. They actually had a lot of, um, a, a lot of great prosperity at the time, but they were oppressing the people. The people that he's talking to were the very rich, wealthy of Israel who were having a great time. We would say, you know, to put it in our terms, it would be like the, the, the stock market is up, real estate market is up, everybody's doing well, 
Prosperity is increasing, and yet the sinfulness of the people kept going up, 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 and no one cared about it. In fact, they were, uh, they were wicked, they were drunk, they were into prostitution, they were immoral, they were unjust, they were inhumane, they were prideful, they were selfish, and they had one thing that uh, really brought God to the point where he, he had enough of them. They were self-sufficient. They said, well, we're doing so well, we don't need God. And we're doing so well, we don't really have any necessity to worship God. And what they called it, a spiritual rebellion. A spiritual rebellion. They began to worship other gods. They began to worship other gods in the places where they were supposed to worship God. They were actually worshiping other gods. And this was in Bethel. This was in places like Gilgal. This was in places up in the north, part of Israel, in Dan. And they would basically could not imagine that God would ever do anything about it. Think about people today. You talk to them about God, they might have a concept of God. But if you talk to them about sin, well, they might be thinking of some people that may sin, right? But when you talk to them about their own sin, that they're the ones included in the sinful message that the Bible speaks that God is going to deal with sin, they can't imagine it's them. They can't imagine it could be them. They couldn't imagine that about, what was it, about 60 years later from this chapter here in Amos, that God was going to send the Assyrian Empire. By the way, this is historical facts. You can go down to the British Museum. You can look it up online. You can do all these research on your own. In fact, I encourage you not to trust me, but to do it on your own and to find out that in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came into Israel and God's judgment that he foretold, so he told them, he warned them ahead of time, happened exactly as God said it would happen. It was so descriptive that it's quite scary at times to read Amos and think he was writing 60 years before it happened, or, or somewhere around 60 years before it happened, uh, 50 to 60 years before it happened. And how he told them that Assyria was going to come with hooks. is going to put the hooks like fish into their mouth and carry them away. And it's exactly what Assyria did. It's in history. It's well known in history that Assyrians were the most wicked, cruelest people in the world. And when they took over a nation, when they controlled the nation, they would actually put hooks on their, on their lips and on their noses, and they would drag them out into the desert and to another country. And so if you had hooks in your mouth and in your nose, you'd be very uh, willing to comply and leave right away and, and keep up the pace. That was their, their reasoning behind it, besides they're just being completely cruel. But he comes to them, Amos comes to them with an important message that he says that God sees their sin, that God takes note of their sin, and God doesn't like their sin, and therefore they knew that God was going to come and judge them. But like many people, they could not imagine that God would do it. And so they didn't take it serious. They didn't take it serious until it was too late. After many years of immorality and idolatry, they finally... God's judgment came, Assyria came, and it's well established in history. Nobody can deny what happened to Israel. Like I said, you can go into and find out on your own that this really happened. So the Bible foretells the future in advance. One of the things about the Bible is that it tells you the future in advance. And you know what's interesting? All these judgments about Israel, all these judgments about the Jewish people that happened in the past because of their false religious system, they worshiped other gods, they lied, they stole, they were immoral, they were cruel to babies, they, they, they burned babies to other gods. This is really what they did. 
and uh, they didn't have no care for human life, that all these things happened to them. And the Bible speaks of it very clear that it happened to them. The New Testament, however, when you read the New Testament, Jesus speaks a lot about this idea of judgment, but he doesn't say, hey, it's going to happen like this to Israel or like that to Judah, although that, that will happen in a small way. Jesus is talking about the eternal judgment, that just as much as these judgments like Assyria and Babylon came, there is an eternal judgment that's coming in its future. And the Bible describes it. And the Bible not only tells you in advance what will happen, but describes it to you, how it will happen. And it's about sin again. It's not the sin of Israel, but it's our personal sin. Remember, sin has I in the middle. And the things that the times that we have sin against God, it's noted by God. He knows about it. And one day, he will deal with that sin. But like many people, they would say, oh, God would never do that. Remember what happened to them? They said they would, God would never do it. Well, one, because they were, they believed they were God's people. Remember, this is the land of Israel. They believed it was, it was almost like a, a, a right that they had, uh, that God would never deal with them because they were God's people. But it happened to them. It happened to them, and God is going to bring judgment, of course. Ultimately, there is eternal judgment. And so Amos is supposed to bring us to this point. And um, we've gone through six chapters already, seven chapters tonight. And um, you get to the point in Amos where you just go, okay, I've heard enough about judgment. What's the, what's the way out of judgment? I think that's everyone's response. It should be everyone's response because Amos brings us to the end of ourselves and ultimately to show us that all of us are in the same situation. All have sinned, fallen short of God's glory, and therefore we must come back to the Lord. And that's what Amos says. Every one of us must beat a path, must make a path to the Lord. That's what we talked about last night or last week. And Amos comes to point us to the fact that there's only one way out of judgment, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what the Bible means by escaping from the judgment to come. So tonight, we're going to look at a few things. In fact, it's quite interesting tonight. Um, there are five visions in the, next five, in the next two chapters. There's five visions. We're not going to go through them all. We're only going to look at three visions today, and we're going to leave the other two for next time. Okay, so it makes it a little bit easier. I was going to challenge myself and say, if I could do all five visions, but then I, I could see it in my, in my mind's eye. I thought, man, people are going to be looking at me really weird when it's about 8 o'clock, and people are going to be like, okay, let's get out of here. And, uh, and I'm going to be like, I got one more, one more to go. I didn't want to do that to you guys. I didn't want to tempt myself either. Three visions tonight. Three visions, and they're very simple. The three visions of judgment. Number one, there is an account it's a really interesting account. It's an, it's an account of a person who heard Amos, and he didn't like it. He didn't like the preaching. And maybe that's some of us tonight. He heard the message of Amos and didn't like it, and went up to Amos and told him to shut up. Yeah, he told him to shut up and told him, don't talk about this anymore. Well, that might be a lot of people tonight, isn't it? As soon as you hear about God, about sin, about judgment, about the future, you might as well not want to hear it. And finally, we won't look at this, but two more visions in chapter 8, which you don't want to miss because it makes the whole thing complete next time, is the fifth, fourth and fifth vision of Amos. Now, when we talk about visions, now I don't, we, we have too many movies in our minds, right? We think of a movie, we think of some guy going into a trance. A vision is simply something that God allows a prophet to see 
uh, whether it's a picture, whether it's uh, uh, words, whether it's something unique. Uh, by the way, if it is getting too hot in here, you guys can turn on the air. Um, just, um, well, not everybody turn on the air at the same time, but if it's getting too warm, I feel it a little bit. So uh, that's up to you guys. Everybody hot? Everybody good? Everybody cold? Too cold? All right. Everybody's too cold. Never mind. Um, I was just speaking for myself. Yeah. Uh, when we're speaking of visions, it's something God allows them to see. They see a vision. They see they could be an animal. It could be a word. It could be something. And this is the way prophets, God will speak to the prophets through that. Then they would preach on it. They would be preaching on what they saw. And so many times in the Bible, this is where people get tripped up by it because they, they hear, they read the Bible, and they go, what is this vision supposed to mean? Well, remember, the prophets spoke like that because sometimes a, a word, I mean, a, a picture is worth a thousand words, isn't it? And this is true even us today, right? That's a teacher teach that today. It's sort of a modern idea that, you know, you have to show pictures and images and kids get it, right? They understand it more. Uh, but God's been doing this for a long time. He's showing pictures, and he showed it in Ezekiel, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and especially Daniel, and especially Zechariah. There were pictures of animals, of beasts. There were pictures of people. There were pictures of angels and visions, all kinds of things, which reminds us about the Bible, tells us what the Bible is like. The Bible is just, this is just a bunch of words. There are events and visions and things that you could see, and you can understand these things. I'll give you one example that we have in our world that makes us understand things very well. I grew up in the 80s. That's a long time ago, especially for the young guys here, right? And uh, when I was a kid, I often saw pictures of a bear wearing a hat and an old man, an old skinny man with a top hat. And the tall skinny man would hit the bear and punch the bear, and they would just, that's the only picture that they showed, Right? Now, if you grew up in the 80s, you kind of know what that is. You have no need to explain it to you. No? Wow. Okay. I'll explain it to you. Well, the tall, skinny man with the top hat was Uncle Sam. And the bear, everybody knows who the Russian bear is, right? Was punching the Russian bear. Now, what did that mean? Do you remember what it meant? It meant that there was a Cold War. It was Russia versus the U.S., right? If you grew up in any time before that, you, you, know, you go under your desk because there was a, a bomb that was going to go off at any time, right? And you went under your desk. They never told us that it didn't matter if you went under your desk or by the window or anything. If it was an atomic bomb, you were dead anyway. So, but that, we went through the whole drill, and then there was Reagan and Gorbachev and all these things. Okay, bring back some memories. Jog your memory. We didn't need to be told all that, right? If you just saw the picture of Uncle Sam and the Russian bear, you got it. You understood it quite well, quite well. The Bible is like that. It gives you a vision. It gives you a picture. And you could see. I know what that means. It gives you a picture of a dragon, a dragon that looks like a serpent. Who do you think that is? Satan. Yeah, because he's a serpent in Genesis, and he's a dragon again. Right? It, picture, it gives you a picture of a lamb that's been slain. Who do you think that is? Jesus. Yeah, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So these pictures are there to really get us to understand that it's not just words, but reality, a living reality, right? And here's one that Amos is going to see. These visions are quite amazing. He's preached to them about their corruption, by the way. He's preaching about their corruption, their spiritual rottenness, and he's going to tell them that judgment is coming, but it could be delayed. This is an interesting thing. It could be delayed. So let's look at chapter 7, and let's look 
at the first few verses. In fact, we can look at the first six verses and we can see what this whole thing means. Thus says the Lord, does the Lord, sorry, God showed me and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout and behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came when it was finished eating the vegetation that the, uh, of the land that I said, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand for he is small? The Lord then changed his mind. The word is to relent, but to change his mind about this. And it shall not be, says the Lord. So we'll stop right there. I'm gonna, I said it was verse 6, but just go read the first three verses. This is a judgment about what? Locust. Now, this means mean nothing to us today because we don't live in a farm or we don't depend on agriculture society. In fact, many, many kids today think that the food is grown at the supermarket, right? Just go to the store, you grab the food, and there it is. And you go back again the next week, and there it is again. You know, there are no cows at the store, by the way. There are no vegetations in the store. They grow it in farms still. They just bring it closer to us. You don't have to go all the way. Unless you go to a farmer's market, then you can do that. But then again, you're still getting it from the farm. The, the locusts were the kind of judgments that you did not want if you depended on farms. By the way, we still depend on farms. You don't want locusts. There could be about maybe 40 to 60 million locusts, and they can lay eggs like crazy. So they can have over 120 million uh, locusts in a swarm very, very quickly. They can travel 2,000 miles. So you just can imagine 2,000 miles. That's quite a bit of miles, can't they? And while they're traveling, they eat about 60 to 80,000 tons of vegetation. That means that if they were to go through the fields of, let's say, Iowa, or the grain fields in Nebraska, or the cornfields in Nebraska, uh, you wouldn't have anything to eat for a while until they grew it up again, right? And sometimes it would wipe out so much of the area that you couldn't go to your neighbor. You couldn't go to Mexico and say, could you give us some of your grain? You couldn't go to Canada and say, could you give us some of your grain? They wouldn't have any. They would be in the same problems that we would have be having. So locusts were a terrible thing to have. No good. And locusts destroy crops so much that you didn't have food for about a year. So imagine, can't go to the grocery store because they don't have any food. Can't go to your neighbor, they don't have any food. Can't go 2,000 miles out, they don't have any food either. So what, were you gonna, what was going to happen? You were going to starve. And this is what happened to many people. In the ancient world, locusts was like a horror film. It was terrifying. It was terrifying to see that this locust swarm was coming. And Amos sees the locust swarm coming into Israel. And what do you think is going to happen? Everything's going to be gone. In fact, it tells us something interesting that we know this is true. It says, when the spring crop began to sprout, and behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. Maybe completely, we don't have no idea what that means, except... What they did in Israel was really interesting. So they had two seasons where it rained, right? We had uh, late October or early October, late October, kind of like what it is now. And then it rained again in spring the next year. So think about it now. We would be raining now and then wait until the next year around springtime. It would rain again. And they would call it the early and the latter rain. Well, vegetation grows, doesn't it? And after the first rain in October, they let the vegetation grow and they get the next rain in the spring, so vegetation really grows. And then the king will send his cows out to the, to the fields, to your field. If you had a field, the king will send his cows out. 
and they would be eating the grass. And that was some kind of tax. Uh, allowing the king's cows to eat all your vegetation was sort of a tax. And then you let them eat it, and then they would go on. And the king had a lot of cows. Whatever was left after the king's cows ate all the grass, whatever was left was yours. It was for your cows. It was for your goats and for your lambs or whatever you had. The rest was yours. Now, if the king ate all, all the, or the king's cows ate all the, all the grass, and whatever was left, but then here comes the locust, right? And this was the, the picture here. The picture is everybody's eaten except for you. And the locust is coming to get all your food. And you're going to have no food at all whatsoever. You're going to be wiped out. And Amos sees this. And he sees the locust coming. And he says, oh, Lord, verse 2, oh, Lord, after they have come and finished eating the vegetation, Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's too small. We're basically saying, God, we're too small compared to you. These locusts are going to wipe us out completely. We're going to starve. And he knows that this is a judgment from God because he sees what the Lord showed him. Verse 1, the Lord showed me this. The locusts were coming. Now, it's quite interesting. It's quite interesting because here is a man. Here is a man who is going to pray. Now, notice Amos. He says, oh, Lord, please forgive now, what do we call that when we intercede for somebody, right? Well, I just gave you the answer. We pray for somebody. You intercede for somebody, doesn't it? Interceding is a, it's a wonderful way of praying. I know we all pray for ourselves. But here's Amos. doesn't pray for himself. He prays for others. And I showed you last time that Amos was a man who pointed out the sin of the people, didn't he? He told them. In fact, if you read some of the messages from Amos, you would be kind of shocked. He called women's cows, right? He called women fat cows. And the reason why he called them fat cows, he wasn't insulting them. He was just telling them that they lived like fat cows. And you have to understand what that meant. In the, in, the, in the ancient world, the fat cows were the cows that you needed for steaks, right? You needed for uh, food. And you sent the cows way up in the north of Israel to fatten up. And then Amos called the rich women of his days, the women who had no care in the world for anything else but their luxury and their goods and their houses of ivory and their gold couches. They didn't care for anything, anybody else or anything else. He called them cows because all you're doing is eating for yourself. All you're doing is heaping up things for yourself. And one day, that cow that's eating really well, it's going to be a steak. And one day... You who are eating really well, who are doing well, Amos says, God's going to bring judgment to you. And what are you going to do then? Now, this man told the truth. This man was absolutely with a piercing fearlessness. He didn't care what people said about him. He told the truth. He told them what God said. That was it. We know he's fearless, but notice he's here. The same man who told them about their sins, look what he's doing in verse 2. What do you think he's doing? He is pleading he is pleading with God for them. And this is an important thing to remember. It's easy to talk about, well, maybe not easy for some of us, but some, maybe for some of us might be. It is easy to talk about all the wrong things that are going on in the world, isn't it? It's easy to talk about, I don't know why am I getting a call here. I'm not here, sorry, I'm busy. Um, it is easy to talk about other people's problems and sins and what's going on in the nation. In fact, we know what's going on in our nation. And it's easy to talk to you guys about what's going on. And you, you bellyache just as much as I do. It's easy to denounce the sin of the nations, the sin of the people. 
It's another thing, isn't it, to weep for the sins of the people. It's another thing to cry and to weep and to pray and to ask God to have mercy on the people that you have just talked about that they're sinning. It's another story, isn't it? We might get mad at our family. We might get mad at other people. And we may be frustrated that they don't get it. But have any of us go home and weep for them? I challenged uh, you guys last week. Well, you guys, some, some of you guys weren't here, but I challenged the uh, believers here, you know, about when was the last time you cried in your prayer? When was the last time you shed a tear? When was the last time you weep, you wept for your family and your unsaved family? And you asked God and you begged God to save them. It's a different form of prayer, isn't it? It's not like, oh, Lord, lay me down, my soul to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Right? It's not that kind of prayer, you know. Thank you, God, for our meal. That's not that kind of prayer. It's an intense prayer. It's, an, it's a prayer that begs for God's mercy to come upon that person, even though you know they don't deserve it. And here's Amos. God, for six chapters, he's told us how wrong they were. Seventh chapter, he says, God, please forgive them. Please don't let this come down upon them. You know what they're going to do? It's going to wipe them out completely. What are you going to do? And it's not easy. It's not easy because sometimes your heart is maybe responding to their sin and you don't want anything to do with them. But here's Amos teaching us to ask God to forgive them, asking the Lord for mercy. You know, we have an election coming up next year in our nation. May or may not happen. Reading about more, more and more things that are going on in our government and more and more things going on against Christians and against people that are conservative. And it just seems like it's, we're being set up for something really big in 2024. And I'm going, Lord, is it going to be an election? I don't know. But if there was an election, if there would be an election, Lord, would you please give us a government that really cares for people? Yeah, and, and so I'm not even talking about Republican or Democrat. I hate them both anyway. So uh, I'm talking about a government that really cares for people. I really do. That really wants to do well for people, especially for believers. You know, that will be God's mercy if we ever get that. I know we don't deserve it. I know the sin of the nations is so deep. You have, you know, there's a litany of things that we can talk about. But if God gave us justice, you know what we would get? Another government that would really be wicked to people. Another government that would wicked to people. So Amos prays for people, prays for the nation. And guess what? Look at verse 3. The Lord changed his mind. Now, the Lord doesn't change his mind like I changed my mind. That's not what it's saying. The word means to relent. That means God took a different course. That means God said this would happen, judgment would happen, but if the people repent, then God would behave like this. If the people turned back to God and, and said, sorry, the Lord, we were not going to go back and do those things again, then God would have mercy. That's what it means to change his mind. And you know, somebody had a conversation with God about this. In chapter 18 of, um, of Genesis, we're told that Abraham talked to God. And what did God talk to, God, uh, to Abraham about? The city of Sodom. You know, that city, that, that horrible, wicked city, that so many sins. And you know what Abraham said? God, if there's 50 righteous people, would you spare the city? And God said, yeah, for 50, I will do it. Well, he knew that there were 50. So I said, God, would, would you do it for 40? God said, yeah, I will do it for 40. I said, would you do it for 30? God said, yeah, I will do it for 30. For 30 people, I will not, 30 righteous people, I will not judge Sodom. With all their sins, I wouldn't do it. How about 20? Yep, 20 it is. And here's Abraham 
bargaining with God about, God, would you please not judge the city? It doesn't deserve it. It's got all kinds of sins. But if there are righteous people in the city, would you please not judge the city for the sake of the righteous? It got down to 10. <laughs> it got down to a very small number. Why? Because God would do it for just one. And of course, Abraham knew his nephew lived there. Lot lived there. And his family lived there. So God would have to remove Lot out of Sodom before the judgment came. And God relented until it happened. Now, here's another example. Amos says, God, please, please, please don't judge the city. Don't judge the city with locusts. And God says, I relented. He literally went a different course. Isn't that amazing? We'll talk about that in a moment. Second vision. Second vision. It's a vision of fire. It's a vision of fire. Let's go to the fire one. Where's the fire one? There it is. Here's the fire one. Second vision is a fire. Look at verse 5. Oh, verse 4, sorry. Then the Lord showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling and contend with them by fire. And it consumed great, the great deep, and it began to consume the farmland. And then I said, Lord, please stop. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. And the Lord changed his mind again about this. This shall not be, says the Lord God. Yet another time. Now, this is not a small kitchen fire. This is a deep fire. In fact, it tells you that it was consuming. It tells you it was consuming the great deep. That means it was going under the earth, and it was probably some volcanic eruption, perhaps, that was coming out of the earth, wiping out the whole field, and lava flowing all over the land, and it was devouring the rocks. It was devouring the topsoil, the farms, everything. It was kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a horrible fire. And God's dealing with the nation of Israel. And you know what happens? He prays again. Here's Amos praying again. Lord, we're not going to exist. If you do this, we're done. Do this, we're done. Now remember the same thing. Here's a man who just told us that this was a wicked city. This was a, what happened to him? This was a wicked city. This was a wicked place. But God, would you please, we beg you, do not judge this city, this place. And God says, I, would never, I, I wouldn't do it. The fire never came. It never came. This is an amazing thing. The, what, what did we quickly learn? And now think about this for a moment. We're, we're going to move on. But number one that we learn here, number one thing that we learn is prayer changes things. I know it's a, a cliche, but I'm going to clarify the cliche. It doesn't just change people, because that's what we're told, right? Prayer never changes anything. It just changes people. Well, that's not necessarily true all the time. It does change people, but it also changes things. Here's a man's prayer who actually changed the way the course of history was going to go. The history should have been written, locusts devoured Israel, fire devoured Israel. And one man prayed, and it didn't happen. Now, some of us couldn't believe that. It's taken us to the edge of our faith because it's like, how can one man pray and the whole thing changes? Well, maybe because we never pray like that. Maybe because our prayers are just so shallow that they don't even have any depth to it. But here's a man that prayed, and we oftentimes think prayer is not going to change anything, but it oftentimes does. We just don't pray. And Amos is relenting or, or diverting the, the, the judgment twice. Twice, judgment doesn't come because one man pray. What we're told in the book of James in the Bible, what are we told in James? The prayer, the effective prayer of a righteous person, a righteous man, 
What does it do? Avails much. It's very effective. Now, it doesn't say the righteous prayer of a prayer group changes things, right? It says the effective prayer of a righteous person. Maybe we're not righteous. That's probably why God doesn't hear us, right? But the word is a righteous person. Just one person that prays. God could divert his whole history the way he was going to do it. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it that way because people prayed. And this is what I'm going to do now. And God changes it. That's why it says changes his mind. Now, it doesn't mean God didn't know what he was going to do. It just means God has a different course of the way he was going to deal with people. Now, the second thing is about prayer, and this is a more challenging thing. Does it seem like it changed God's mind? That God had something in mind for judgment, and then people prayed, and God totally changed his mind and went in a different direction. And you know what? You would be right. God changes the course of action based on prayer. Now, we all know, and we all tell, you know, we tell each other, God's, in, you know, he's sovereign, he's omniscient, he knows everything, he knows what he's going to do. Of course he does. But here's an example where he invites us to pray, or he encourages us to pray through Amos, and the prayer is a prayer of compassion. God, please don't judge his people. And what does God do? Okay, I won't. I won't judge them. I will give them mercy. And, and, and why does God do that? Have you thought about that? Why does God do He's the all-powerful God. Who can stop him? No one can. What, what, say it again. He's long-suffering. Okay, why does he do that? He's long-suffering. He suffers long with people. Yeah, he's very compassionate to people. In fact, say it again. To see if we care. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah, to see if we're going to keep praying. He's merciful and compassionate. He would rather not judge people. This is what we know about our God. He'd rather not judge people. He'd rather save them. That's God's heart for people. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus? And they wanted Jesus to, you know, to say, yeah, this is, this is wrong and you should stone her to death. That's what they wanted him to do. But he said, no. You know why? Because the Savior's first motivation is to save that person. The Savior's first motivation is to always to save a sinner and to change the sinner and to put the sinner right back in a relationship with him. God wants a relationship with them. How can you have a relationship and it's all based on judgment? No, he wants that person to come. And he's merciful, and he gives mercy to those who ask. But maybe we don't ask. And we have not, James says, because we ask not. We have not because we ask not. You ever thought about it? Like, God, I never asked for this. Never asked to be merciful to my, my neighbor or the person that hates me at work or the person that doesn't want me in my family, right? There are certain things that I want my children to ask me. I have five children, and there are certain things I want them to ask me. Sometimes they come to me, and they have a terrible attitude. Parents, you know this, right? And what do you do? Oh, honey, whatever you want. No, 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 you shouldn't do that as a parent, right? You just say no. I know some of us can't tell no to our kids, but we have to, right? Nope, not going to do it. Oh, Dad, come on. No, come on, do it. Nope, because I see your heart. I see your attitude, and I'm not going to do it. But if they come later on with a really repentant heart and they're really willing to change and willing to say, you know, Dad, I'm going to do this now, then what am I going to say? Yep, let's do it, right? Did, did I change my mind? Yeah, in a sense. But it was depending on the reaction of my child. If my children come with mercy and, and compassion that they want me to have for them, I'm willing to give it to them. If they come with the wrong attitude, I'm going to be like, no, not come in. And this is a way of understanding God, a way of understanding God 
God behaves to us like a father. Remember, many, many times in the Bible it tells us he's a father. And relating to us as a father is we have that understanding of how a good father, a righteous father, will always want to do good to his children, right? Always want to do good, but it's always based on his goodness, not my goodness, right? And this is a wonderful, wonderful thing about God. He's infinite and comprehensible, absolutely, but he dwells with people that are humble. He's willing to give them what they ask for. He's willing to give them what they ask for. This is a wonderful example, right? God says, I will judge this nation. He will do it. Amos gets on his knees and he prays. Well, we read the Bible and we realize, man, God has, has judgment toward sin. And our nation has sin. Can believers today get on their knees and ask God to forgive America for their sins? Yeah, we, 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 meet, we need to. We need to do it every day. And we can see the state of the church, and we can see how the church is diverting from God's word. And we can say, God, would you please send preachers and pastors and leaders of righteousness that would point people back to you? And God will do it. God will do it. And this is why Jesus compelled us to pray. Didn't Jesus tell us to pray often and give us the example and tell us, come and pray? And the Bible beckons us and invites us to come. And it's a rather amazing thing if you think about it. We can contribute to God's will by our prayer. God has a will. He wants to save people. And he invites us to pray, invites us to, for, he, for him to have compassion. And so the locusts did not come, and the fire did not come, because one man prayed. That's amazing, right? There's power. And this is the third thing we need to remember. There's power in the prayers of God's people. I know that you know, prayer seems boring at times, and people don't come to prayer meetings and because it seems like nothing's going to get done, and we forget about the prayer meeting, and we, we don't think about it in our minds. We've got something else in our mind, but God says to pray. God says to pray. It's just as important as anything else that we do in, in, in the church. And so when we see a nation that's ripped for judgment, it's ripe for judgment, it's ready to go, when we see the filth, that the nation upholds and, the, and, and what men consider a good thing today. Just read Romans 1. It tells you all about it. Book of Romans chapter 1, that what God is going to send judgment onto a society that has turned their back on him, right? And people can't understand it. They can't understand why would God do it. Well, just read it. Read why he's so uh, against sin. And they cannot understand People cannot understand because they don't desire spiritual things. That's what happens in our nation. So um, just some things I remembered in history. I think they hopefully encourage you. Uh, reading the story of John Wesley. I don't know if you ever read John Wesley, but it's wonderful. Just, this is why history is so important. Church history is so important. Here's a man. I've been near his house. It's like a museum today. He lived long ago in England. And for years, he got on his knees. It was, he was known for his prayer life. And he begged God to save England. He begged God to save England for years, day after day, year after year. He begged God to save England. And you know what God did? He used him to reach so many people in England that it was known at the time that if there were any people talking in a, in a corner in England, in London, it was usually a Christian trying to witness to another person. That's how it changed. Cops had nothing to do. Because... People didn't steal anymore. People didn't rob anymore. People didn't, you know, were, were not violent anymore. Why? Because God used John Wesley to preach the message to so many people. The cops almost ran out of work. 
because they had nothing else to do. It was such a righteous nation. It was such a, right, not a righteous time. It was, it was like, you know, fentanyl and, and crack today and cocaine. Well, they had a thing called gin. Gin, you know what a gin is, right? A gin liquor, right? Everybody drank. It was a thing to go to the pubs. Everybody drank, and it was destroying families. There were so many orphans in London because all their parents drank themselves to death. They're working in the coal mine, and they just drank, and all the kids had no idea where their parents were, and many times they found them dead. The message of the gospel went to all of England, and overnight, people would stop drinking. Just overnight, people just stopped going to the pubs. They stopped getting drunk. They, they saved their marriages. They stopped getting, you know, caught up in, in, in the drug of the day. And they became fathers and mothers. to The, the whole society changed because one man prayed, and he begged God to save England. Just one person. Now, maybe there were more people that prayed. This is what we know. Uh, how about William Tyndale, the other guy right there? You have an English Bible? You can read the Bible in English? Thank the Lord for that guy right there who begged God for every word that he would translate from the Greek to the English and he wanted God to give him every word that was effective, the right English word so that he can communicate to the English-speaking people what God's word said. Otherwise, we would never know. I don't speak Greek that well. I don't know if you anybody speak Greek here. It would have been lost. Hebrew or Greek would have been lost. Thank God for William Tyndale who prayed earnestly that God would give him the words to say so that that page that you read today is in English because he wrote it first in English. How about that group right there, that little lamb right there with the little flag? <laughs> it's, uh, it's from the Moravians. This is history, so sorry for the, the boringness of it, but this is important for you to see that this is not some philosophical college course that you can take about theories. These were real people who really prayed and got really moved in their lives, and it happened. They're called the Moravians. There was a group of missionaries from Germany. And they had a prayer meeting that lasted 100 years. And they're like, well, that's a long prayer meeting, isn't it? Well, it's, I'll explain how it worked. They committed themselves to pray that one of them will always be praying on a 24-hour shift. 24-hour shift. And more people were at it. They, 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 it was an amazing move of God. And they begged God to save Europe. And God used them to share the gospel everywhere. And, it, and they had these, these prayer meetings where everybody prayed. You were assigned one time, you were assigned another time, you were assigned another time, and you were faithful to pray. And they had a prayer chain that lasted 100 years. I, I, I can get Christians in this church to pray for one hour without looking at a clock. 100 years? Can you imagine that? That's generation after generation. That means you, you had to teach your children to pray. And they had to teach their children to pray. So you had a father, a son, and a grandson who were constantly in a prayer chain praying for Europe for 100 years. I'm telling you, my friends, it puts us to shame. We can't even get prayer for 30 minutes. People get restless. They were praying around the clock for God, begging God to save people in Europe. And you know what happened? Exactly what they prayed for. <laughs> people got saved. Jewish people got saved in Portugal, in Spain. People in Spain, people in England, if your family came from there, uh, they heard the gospel because of the Moravians. Pray for 100 years. Anyway, long story short, there are, are there any women and men like this anymore? Well, I'm staring at some of them. Hopefully you would have said, yes, that's me. I'm committed to pray, right? 
You know, I, I want to say yes, but I don't know too many. I want to say yes, but I don't know too many people that would really seek God and really pray. Like I said, not the prayer meals, right? It's good to pray for your meal, but I'm talking about intercession for God to hold back the judgment and say, God, would you please give this nation one more chance before Jesus comes? I see young people. I go walking around the high schools, talking to people, talking to young kids, and I say, oh, Lord, would you please help these young people to get to know Jesus? Some of them have no clue, never heard of Jesus before. Never been told about Jesus. Never been told what he did. Maybe they saw him on a, maybe a little, little guy on their dashboard, right, if they came from a Catholic background. That's all we know about Jesus. That's all I knew about Jesus. But they came, and he touched me, and, he wants, and I pray that he touches them too because it's, it, it's, if that next generation doesn't know Jesus, it's, we're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble. If you got kids, you got grandkids, you know, they better know Jesus. Otherwise, the next generation, it only takes one generation, by the way. It only takes one generation for that, the gospel in a society to be gone. If I know the gospel, if you know the gospel, but our kids don't know the gospel, it's over. That next generation needs to carry it. Now, God's faithful. God's faithful. He will do it. He always keeps our people for his own name. But he beckons us to call and beckons us to pray. Anyway, took long enough on that one. Let's go to the third vision. Third vision, verse 7. Moving lightning speed tonight. Yep, that's it. Thus he showed me, verse 7, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will spare them no longer. Then the high places of Isaac will be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Uh-oh. Third vision. Notice that there is no relentless here. There is no diverting of judgment anymore. It was a plumb line. I will show you a plumb line. Now, what is a plumb line? Anybody use a plumb line here before? All right, a couple. Okay. It is perpendicular. It is true. Now, what is it? It's basically, basically a string with a weight on it, like a lead at the, at the bottom, right? And it's supposed to, what it's supposed to do, brick layers know this, if you brick, you know, lay bricks before, construction guys know this all the time, right? It's, it's supposed to show you what's straight, right? It's supposed to show you what's straight because it's what it's doing. It is actually pointing to something that's already there on the earth. It's called the magnetic pull of the earth, the magnetism of the earth, the gravity of the earth is pulling, and it's going to be a straight line, right? So it's pointing at this, uh, at, at this uh, gravity on the earth, and it's lining up perfectly. And it enables you to put everything straight. So if you want to know what something's straight, you can see there, brick layers. Uh, by the way, it's still used today, even though we have modern instruments. But when those modern instruments, you know, like things happen, don't work, they bust out a plumb line, right? And it's 100% right. It shows you 90-degree angles and everything. It's, it's quite amazing. And uh, so he says, what do you see? Now, what is a plumb line uh, in terms of God's, what's God showing here? Well, it is something that is straight, right? It's something that measures what is straight and it's something that measures what is right. And guess what that is? God's word. A plumb line, the vision here is God's word, meaning that God is going to measure what is straight, what is crooked, what is upright, what is not right, based on his word, based on his law. And so God always points to this. Remember, the plumb line always points to the earth's gravity. God's word always points to one thing, God's holiness. 
God's holiness. When you read the Bible, it points to one person, Jesus Christ, and who he is as a person. He is God. He is man. He never sinned. He is upright. He is perfect. He's holy. He's good. And the plumb line always will measure us to the standard of Jesus Christ. Now, how do you do that? Yeah, how do you do when you measure up against Jesus? Because it's easy to measure up against me, right? He said, well, I'm better than you, better than Frank, better than Anthony, right? You can say, well, Frank does this. I don't do that. Vera does that. I don't do that. So I must be better than him. And we all measure each other, right? It's natural. It's human, it's human thinking that we're trying to be better than our neighbor, better than the other person. Not as bad as that guy. Maybe not as good as that guy. So I'm kind of like in a C average, right? But the measurement of God is always Christ. It's always the plumb line, right? How do you, you know, how do you do that? Right? Very simple, right? You ever want to know how straight you are in terms of how God sees us? Have you ever lied? Where does that make you? A crooked liar, right? Have you ever stolen anything? No matter the value, a crooked thief. Not a stealer. That's a base. That's a football team, right? That's not a, that's not a, <laughs> uh, you know, might make you a raider, but that's a different story, right? Um, a thief, uh, a, a, you know, a crooked thief. How about, um, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Meaning God, use God's name as a curse word or a cuss word. It's called blasphemy. You're a crooked blasphemer, right? And by God's standard, all of us are crooked. All of us have sinned in some capacity or another, whether in action, whether in words, whether in thoughts. Because Jesus even said, if you lusted after a man or a woman, you're guilty as if you committed something physical with them. Uh-oh. So all the different ways God has us because when we stand up next to him, we can't ever be righteous. We can ever be right in our, own, in our own ways. We can never be right. And therefore, we're ultimately crooked. And that's what God's word is showing us. If he was to measure our society, how do you think it looks like? <laughs> Sideways, jagged, all kinds of different ways, right? The psalmist always used this word, those who are upright in heart those who are righteous, those who have that 90-degree angle right, with God, they're upright. They're not crooked, they're upright. Well, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. We're all crooked, and God says, I'm going to walk around Israel, and I'm going to measure Israel, verse 8. I'm going to plumb line, and I'm going to measure the house of Israel, and I will look at their high places, and I will look at the people there, and I'm going to measure them according to my word and my standards. You know what, Jesus, what, what God found? He found walls that were crooked. He found walls that were not right. And any contractor will tell you, well, there's nothing we can do. The foundation is gone. This wall is crooked. What is, it, what is the contractor going to tell you to do? Tear it down. You can't use it anymore. Once the foundation is eroded, you can't use it anymore. So you have to go out and build it again. And by the way, God had built this nation. He built a nation with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and people like, a, uh, like uh, uh, Moses, and people like David, and people like Joshua, godly people. But that was already gone. They've been dead for a long time. The people now were absolutely not right with God. And God says, judgment is coming. Notice here that Amos doesn't intercede like the first two visions. He doesn't say, Lord, would you please forgive them? No. No. Because there's no intercession permitted. 
meaning that the prophet cannot intercede anymore. It's gone so far. The wall is so crooked. There is no way to bring it back. In fact, there's a few things that was going to fall. Well, number one, look what it says, the high places, verse 9. What's the high places? Anybody have any idea what the high places were? Verse 9? Yeah, uh, this, was, this was the mystical places, the, the foul places, we would say. There was homosexuality and sexuality up there. There was prostitution. There were all kinds of sinful things going up. They had orgies. They, had in, you know, they were enjoying the orgies up in the mountains. There were horrible things done up there. And it was a very crooked society. They were doing it up in the high places in the mountains, and nobody would know. Then after a while, they didn't care. They brought it into the city. Second thing, look what it says. The high places and the sanctuary. What is the sanctuary? Well, it was a place where they were supposed to worship God, like Bethel. And you know what they did in those places? They actually substituted God. They said, God, would you please get out of here? Because I, I need room for my God. They usually worship Baal or Molech or Malcolm, right? They use all these different gods, or Ashtoreth, right? And they worship those gods in the place of God. And what's el- what else is going to happen? It says here, and I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam. Well, he was the king. He was the king at that time. So the government and the political system had to go because there was such a wickedness. God put a plumb line next to these guys, and they were completely crooked. And so it revealed God's righteousness, and God had to do something now. Now, there's a lesson here, very important lesson. There comes a time where the only thing that matters if it's a person repented or not. Now, repentance means to turn back to God, to turn away from sin and turn back to God. And even the prayers of God's people cannot keep the judgment from coming. If repentance doesn't happen, we can pray all night, all day, But if repentance doesn't happen, judgment is going to fall. The prophet delayed it. Remember? He delayed it a couple times. He delayed it a couple times by his prayer, his intercession. He delayed it. It didn't come. The locusts didn't come. The fire didn't come. But when the people did not repent, finally the judgment came. And so we cannot remain stubborn against God. We cannot remain stubborn against his and hard-hearted against God. We have to repent. But once repentance doesn't happen, then it's inevitable that judgment is going to fall. And the book of Revelation explains that to us. The final book of the Bible explains that there is a final judgment that's going to come. Now, these three visions shows us one thing. You can, you can delay the judgment, but if there's no repentance, judgment is going to come. You look at our nation. right? This is, again, we're putting in our society and in our, in our application. Look at our nation. Look at the people in our nation who claim, a lot of them claim to be Christians. In fact, if you look at the, 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 the surveys, about 60 to 65% still believe that they are Christians. Now it's going down quite fast. It might be in the, in the high 50s now. But less and less people believe that they're Christians, but there's still quite a, a lot of people in America who believe that they're Christians. Do you have any evidence of repentance? That means that they've left their sin and they have turned back to God. Well, there's less evidence of that. So it means that if you read what's going on in the world, you would say, is God ready to judge the world? Interesting, isn't it? If you just base it on that, do you see more people turning back to God or less? Absolutely. Less. Do you see more people repenting or less people repenting? 
of their sin. Less. So by that standard, the inevitable judgment of God has to come. Because God says, you could delay it, and we ought to pray. But when people don't repent, even the prayers of righteous people cannot uphold the judgment forever, cannot withhold the judgment forever. So remember, we're not just reading history, we're reading a teaching from God. This comes from God. God is teaching Amos, and he's teaching us through Amos. Now, a very interesting thing happened. would be final point. Somebody hears a message like this, and they don't like it. Look at verse 10. Amaziah was the priest of Bethel. You know that place where they were worshiping false gods? Yeah, he was a priest from there. And he sent word to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For Amos says this, Jeroboam is going to die by the sword, and Israel will go into exile. So here's a man named Amaziah, and it's very interesting. There's a little pause here, a little pause until chapter 8 comes the next vision, which is vision number 4. This pause is a story. It's a story of what really happened, an account. A man heard Amos, and he's like, oh, no, he's not saying that. I don't like what Amos is saying. So he went up to him. I'm sorry, not him. He went up to the king. He'll go up to him in a minute. And he said to the king, this man is preaching that you're going to die. This man is preaching that you're going to, the whole nation is going to go into exile and, and your family is going to die by the sword. This is against the king, right? This is against the king. He's not being patriotic, <laughs> right? He's not being patriotic. He's not being patriotic enough. And so Amos is preaching here in Bethel and Amaziah doesn't like it. By the way, Bethel was the place where they set up all the idols, so Amaziah was supposed to be a priest of God, but what was he allowing? All the false idolatry around him, right? He was a fake priest. We say fake pastors, fake preachers, right? That only tell you the nice things. But when it comes to when he heard the message of judgment, you know what he did? He got offended. Can you imagine that? Christians getting offended at a church. You haven't seen my mailbox, right? Uh, or calls or, or meetings, right? Always, there's always somebody getting offended, right? But here's one guy got offended because Israel was going to be judged, and he didn't like it. And in the place where all the falseness was located, this was the place that God was like, that's the first place I'm going to judge. And Amaziah saw his job coming to an end. And he said, oh, no, job security. We can't have that. So he went, up to, <laughs> he went up to the king, and of course, this is typical of, of, of false guys like this, right? They did this to Jesus. Remember, they couldn't find any fault in Jesus. He was perfect. The Pharisees, the Sadducees could not find any fault in what Jesus, what he said or what he did. So you know what they did? They went to the Romans, they went to Pilate, and they said, he's a king. He wants to be a king. He's rallying everybody up. And the Romans said, well, we have to do something. Pilate found no fault in Jesus. He washed his hands off the whole thing. He says, you guys do it. Religious leaders will always betray his own people. This is what happened to Jesus. It's happening to Amos here. They made an accusation against Amos. Now, did Amos say judgment was coming? Yeah, but he framed it in such a way that it was against the king, against the people. He's not right. We need to get rid of him. That's what they did to Jesus. He's not right. He wants to be a king. And we know Caesar is king, they said. So they did that to Jesus. By the way, it still happens today. 
I told you the story of the, a lady in Finland. Her name is Pavi Ramstein or something like that. Very difficult to pronounce her name, I find. And uh, she's from Finland. She's actually in the government of Finland. And she's a Christian. And she went to a Lutheran church. But at some point, she didn't like that the Lutheran church was promoting homosexuality and lesbianism, LGBT, as a, as a Christian church. She didn't like that. So her right was to appeal and say to the church, to her church, hey, we shouldn't be doing that. Because according to the Bible, that's a, that's a sin. She was just talking to her church. Her church turned her in to the government and said, ooh, you said something against the LGBT? We're going to put the government against you. And they did. They sued her twice. The government found no, no, uh, no record of wrongdoing against her, so they sued her again, third time. She has to go to court three times. Who's doing it? The Finnish government? No. Her own Lutheran church, which she doesn't participate anymore in that church because she says that they've gone the wrong way. But it's, it's happens. It happens to a lot of people, by the way. It happened to Amos here. They will turn against the people that are preaching a message that they don't like. Isn't that crazy? It was about judgment. He said, it, judgment is going to come. Now, he prayed for them twice, and it's not going to happen. But then God says, it will happen now. And they didn't like the message. So now he goes to Amos, verse 12. Then Amaziah said to Amos, go, see, flee, uh, go you seer. Flee away from the land of Ju- uh, to the land of Judah, and there eat your bread, and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary uh, of the king in a royal residence. I love this stuff, right? The king doesn't want you here. Get away from here. Get out of here. Make your living somewhere else. This is very true. You hear a preacher and a teacher and a plumb line. The words of Amos... And Amaziah, who is corrupt as you can get, doesn't like it, right? And the words of God begin to hit Amaziah in the heart, and he begins to protest. That's what happens. You begin to protest against God's word. I don't like what this man's saying. And Amos comes, and he preaches his message, and Amaziah says, you need to get out of here. We don't like your kind here (laughs) because you're preaching a negative message. No, Amos is going to respond. Oh, just about done. Verse 14, Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore trees. Now notice what um, verse 13 says about um, Amaziah. No longer prophesy at Bethel. It is a sanctuary of the king. Well, it was a false sanctuary. It wasn't the true sanctuary of God. Look at verse 12. Go from here and go to the land of Judah and there eat bread and there do your prophesying. Don't do it here. Amaziah tells Amos to leave. Amos responds and says, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore trees. What does he tell him then? What Amaziah was telling him is says, like, go eat your bread somewhere else. It's like, you know, go get a job somewhere else. Don't get a job here. Go make your living away from here. And and Amos is like, a living? I don't make a living by preaching. I make a living by a herdsman. I'm a a shepherd. And I am a, I I tend to the trees. You think I am preaching so I can get paid. Oh, you got it wrong. 
I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, meaning that I'm not a prophet for hire. I'm not here to make money. I'm here to tell you what God said. It's not about the money. It's not about the livelihood. It's not something that I came here to do because I wanted to do. It's because God appointed me to preach. I'm here because God called me. I'm here because God called me to prophesy against Israel. I think every, this is very true of every preacher, of every righteous preacher, right? Um, it's true of me. I am not a, my dad was not a prophet, <laughs> and I'm not the son of a prophet. That's true, right? Um, but more importantly, we're not here because of the money. We're not here because it's, it's good, because we're here because God called us. That's why we're here. We preach the message because it's not about, it's not about what we make. It's about what God says. And there was, there was a time, right? There was a time, um, there was a time where I wasn't even, I just, I would work, work, work all day and then come and preach until the church find it in their hearts that they would actually hire me to, to take care of the church. But that's a different story. Amos is here saying, I'm not a prophet for hire. I'm a prophet because God called me. And that's his testimony. His testimony is, I'm here because God called me. Amaziah, who was Amaziah? He was a priest. What do you have to be to be a priest? You have to be the son of a priest to be a priest. Amaziah was a hired guy. He was a man for hire. Why? Because in order to be a priest, you had to be the son of a priest. So it's actually Amaziah is the one who's wrong, not Amos. Amos is the one who came because God told them. Amaziah is there because he's probably getting paid. And you know, when job security is at stake, you don't want to lose your job. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. But the Lord took me from the flock, and the Lord said, go prophesy to my people Israel. So Amos was actually a man who was just in the field. And we know from chapter 1 that this is where he received the word. He saw a vision, and the Lord said, go to Israel. He was a happy man in the field. He was a happy man taking care of the trees. Who wants this burden, right? Who wants to be hated by people? Unless God called you to do Unless God called you to preach. So, oh, I was saying another story, but I'm, I'm going to go on because that story is going to take too long. So Amaziah says, get out of here. Don't preach. Amaziah, you're wrong. Amos was right. Verse 15, sorry, verse 16. Now hear the word of the Lord. You are saying you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor you shall speak against the house of Isaac. Notice this. Amaziah told Amos, don't preach against Israel. This is a very important thing to remember. Don't prophesy against Israel. Any pastor, any preacher, any minister does two things. We preach what we're for. We're for the gospel. We're for Jesus. We're for the Bible. We're for the salvation of people. But you know what pastors and preachers ought to do as well? They have to preach against things. And that's not very popular. I had a, a lady tell me one time, hey, we love when you preach for things, but when you talk about the things you don't like, we don't like it. And I said, well, I'm so sorry, you know, but I have to do both. Because I, I, I like to tell people what we're for, but you know what is, is even as important is to tell people what we're against too. Because if you don't tell that, then they don't know. And so Amos was preaching against Israel, and Amaziah is telling him, don't preach against Israel. It's like, you don't want me to say things against Israel? Well, I'm going to say it. Because in an age where everybody has to be tolerant, 
And every faith is equal, and everybody's the same, and Islam is the same as Christianity, and this faith, this new age, is the same as Christianity, and everybody is interfaith and ecumenical. That's not true. We must preach against the things that are false. We must. And there is a time where a pastor, a teacher, a preacher, whoever it is, must only, not only tell you the right things, but to tell you the things that are wrong as well. And if somebody's not willing to do that, they're not being faithful because we have to do both. I preach for the truth. I preach against lies. I preach for the gospel. I preach against false gospels. I preach for the truth of God's word, and I preach against the lies of the devil. We have to. I preach for the righteousness of Jesus, and I preach against the sin of humanity. Right? Now, if somebody might not, oh, I like the fact that you're for this, for that, but if you don't preach against this, what are you preaching for? <laughs> you have to contrast the two. If there's truth, there's also lies. If there's righteousness, there's also sin, right? If there, it, there's truth and there's lies. There's heaven, there's hell. There's Jesus and the devil. It's, it's, it's all there. We have to preach for and preach against. And here's Amos being told, don't preach the negative stuff. But what does Amos says? Now hear the word. I'm going to preach against this. Verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord... Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword, and you will be parceled up by measuring the line of you, uh, and you for yourself will die upon unclean soil. Moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Okay, you don't want me to preach against Israel? I'll preach against you, says Amos. Notice the terrible judgment. So some people have a hard time with this one. Amaziah, you're a priest of Israel. You're a chaplain of the king. Things are coming so bad that your wife will actually become a harlot on the street just to make a living. Your kids are going to die. Your land will be divided up and given to someone else, and you will be ending up in, in, another, person, another, in another country, and you're going to die there, and Israel's going to go into exile. Boy, a terrible punishment for a terrible sin. What was Amaziah doing? Amaziah was literally stopping People hearing God's word. Shut up, Amos. Don't say anything. Amaziah, this is a judgment against you. You're trying to stop God's word from going out. God is going to see to it that you're the one that gets the judgment. See, that's the truth. Now, as we finish, what did we learn? That this message is too long. Again, no, I'm kidding. What did we learn? Number one, an unconverted person hates to hear about judgment. An unconverted person, a sinful person, a person who's not a Christian, hates to hear about judgment. They want to get rid of it in their mouth. They'll leave because they know it's true. See, when we talk to unsaved people, people that are not Christians, and we talk to them about the gospel, and what the gospel is, and what the gospel is keeping them from, which is the judgment of God, people don't, people get angry, not because they don't know. People get angry because they know. They know it's true. Their conscience bears witness that they have sinned, and they bear witness that they're going to have to deal with God. And so they don't want to talk about it. Read Romans 1 again. Second lesson, people grumble about preachers because they say, well, Preachers go on, and nobody listens to them anyway. So your message has no bite, has no force. 
And you know why it doesn't have any force? Do you know why many, many, many messages around the United States and around the world have no force when a man preaches? It's because they don't speak about the judgment of God. They don't speak about what could happen to them. Very likely would happen to them if they don't come to Christ. It'll prick a man's heart when they hear about judgment to come. In fact, Jesus said this. When the Holy Spirit is at work, you know what he's going to do? He is going to convict you of sin, of righteousness. Sin meaning you have sin. Righteousness meaning you need to be right. And of judgment to come. When the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, Jesus said this. Those three things will be in your mind. Have I sinned? Yes. Have I lived right? No. Is there judgment against not living right? Yes. What must I do to be saved? That's the natural inclination when the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction in your heart. But people don't like to hear it. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, when you hear the gospel, there's a day of judgment that Jesus is going to be the judge. He's the judge of all the earth. And judgment is going to come. And I believe that we would have a true sense of revival, call it revival, call it awakening, whatever you want to call it, in America, in the churches of America, if pastors and preachers will actually grow a backbone sometimes and tell people that if they don't come to Christ, there's a judgment that awaits. But I think a lot of them wouldn't do it because they would be scared that the people would walk away. And they said, who needs this guy? He's like, Amos, tell him to shut up. And they can't handle it. It's my opinion. But I believe that we shouldn't be passive about sin. I don't think we should be passive about sin. I think we need to deal with sin. I think we need to bring it up and deal with it the way God says to deal with it, that every person in this room is going to give an account to God. Every person in this room will give an account to God. Every person in this room will give an account to God who knows our sins personally. And he's going to judge them personally. And this is where we need to meet God and the reality of where we are with God, the plumb line. And this opens up our hearts, isn't it, to the sweet gospel, to the sweet message, the good news of God, that in the fury of his wrath, he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to the day to die on the cross for us, to rise again from the dead to give us eternal life. And you know, in that great day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, where the church was, was born, as it were, and Peter preached that message that everybody loves, and 3,000 people were saved. You know, when he preached that message, you know what he told them? He says, God's going to judge you. That's what he said. God's going to judge you, and you should be fearful of the wrath to come. Because he says, how are you going to flee from the wrath to come? Can you imagine that, telling that to a bunch of people that you haven't met yet? And you know what happened to people? They didn't tell them to shut up because God was working in their hearts. You know what they said? 3,000 people came to Peter, and they said, what shall we do? What do we need to do? And Peter told them, repent, believe, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receive him in your life. Receive him in your heart, and you will have the forgiveness of sin. That's Amos' message. That's Amos' message, basically, in a nutshell. Judgment is coming. You can divert it for a while. You can pray, and we ought to pray. But it's inevitable it's going to come. So between that time and the judgment to come, we need to make sure you're right with the Lord, I'm right with the Lord, 
that our family's right with the Lord, and we need to fear God in that way so that we wouldn't go back to that sin. It's called repentance, to turn back away from sin and come with a message in our hearts that says, what shall we do? Repent, believe in Jesus, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. That's the message. That's how you keep from judgment. And God's word says, it's going to happen. There's an eternal judgment. It's going to happen. But there's forgiveness. Oh, there's sweet forgiveness. Doesn't that open up the sweet, sweet balm of the gospel of Jesus, knowing that we can escape the wrath to come? Praise God for that. Three visions. There are still two more to come. Don't miss next time. He sees a basket of summer fruit. What does that have to do with it? And he sees the Lord standing by the altar. I don't wonder what that means. You have to find out. Chapter 8 and chapter 9. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that your mercy and grace through Christ Jesus, our Lord, covers all of our sins. It says in 1 John that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. It tells us that we need forgiveness. That's the greatest need of our lives today is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It tells us that we have sin. Oh, that plumb line measures us very straight. And Lord, we've all, we're all crooked. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. But Lord, we know that the judgment can be avoided for a time. But sin is inevitable. It's going to continue. And judgment is inevitable. It's going to happen. And Lord, I pray that through Christ Jesus, our Lord, today, we would turn to him with all our hearts. We would leave our sin. We would leave the things that so easily trips us and turn to him with all our hearts and leave those things that offend him and receive the forgiveness, receive the Holy Spirit. Lord God, help us to turn from sin. And Lord, we pray as Christians, as believers in you, as faithful believers in you, we would commit ourselves to pray and to pray in such a way like we've never prayed before. Lord God, I pray you give us, a, uh, Lord, a, a real spirit of prayer and, and, and an attitude of prayer is what I mean, a spirit of prayer, an attitude of prayer, a, a, a reliance on prayer. And we would beg, Lord God, not only for forgiveness, but the forgiveness of others, that you would save others, Lord God. And I know you listen to the faithful prayers of people. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that in us. Help us to commit to this, Lord God. You know the hearts of every person here. In Jesus' name, amen. 